Welcome to this podcast on the BMJ, created in collaboration with the World Health Organization and UN University. This podcast is a part of the collection on women's health and gender inequalities. It celebrates 25 years since the Beijing Declaration on Women's Rights. I'm Vismita Gupta-Smith. In these podcasts, we'll be hosting conversations between women earlier and some who are more advanced in their careers. Doctors, researchers, legislators, and campaigners, all working towards building a future in which women can thrive. As well as these in-depth discussions, we'll hear from experts who have written for the collection to give you insights into how they think the world should change, as well as give you a flavor of the broader conversations around women's health and gender inequalities. In this first podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Adrian Germain and Fila Magnus. Adrian started her career as an activist for women's health in the 1970s and went on to become the president of International Women's Health Coalition. Fila Magnus is director of communications at the International Youth Alliance for Family Planning. Fila and Adrian discuss campaigning now and then and how the work that led to the declaration can be built on never quite Let me start with you, Adrian, first. Um, we know that uh, you are you're, uh, you have so much experience and you have a lifetime of work in, in this area. Where does that passion for women's health and gender equality come from? It began in 1968 when I was a, a junior in college. I spent six months in Peru uh, working on a household survey, which meant that, that I was um, all over the country, which is highly diverse, in people's homes, sitting in various kinds of conditions, chatting, always with the woman of the household, because, of course, it was the women who were at home mostly. Toward the end of the six months, we were deep in the Amazon, uh, where, um, and I, I will just never forget this, uh, we happened to arrive when a young man uh, with four small children was burying his wife, who had died, giving birth without any help to her fifth child, and she was, they think, about 30 years old. And those, I, the, the, that just hit me in my gut. Of course, my upbringing in the United States was very different, and it stayed with me all my life and motivated me. Uh, those realities of women's lives, what they managed to do, the strengths that they had in the face of enormous uh, um, opposition and neglect. Adrian, we're going to talk more about your experiences as you worked in different parts of the world and how you uh, kept your own motivation uh, and, and spirits up as you worked towards uh, uh, you know, policies that were more sensitive to women and young girls. But let me also bring in at this stage Fila. Fila, tell me about uh, why you are passionate about this area. I started, I think, really just in the nonprofit world when I was about 14, uh, firstly working in the Palestinian plight and then slowly moving towards refugees here in Malaysia. And then over time, um, working with refugees, you started seeing just 
what the experiences of those women were like out here, especially in a country that doesn't recognize their rights. Um, so they had no access to education, they had no access to healthcare, and they had no means of working at all because they weren't considered legal in the country. Um, and I think starting from that, I just realized how big of an issue this truly was. I myself came from a very privileged background, I would have to say, but working with these women just made me realize what the realities were like for others out there. And I think it started from there that I really just started investing myself into the field and just seeing what I could actually do to make the changes and the difference that I do want to see. Well, you know, it's very clear from both the both your stories um, and the stories of the women that you, you're telling that um, women's and, and young young women's health uh, and it's very much a function of where you grew up, what kind of uh, access and privilege we had as women or not. So let me start with you, Adrian. Paint us a picture of what common understanding of governments and health agencies uh, and the health sector, what did that look like when you started as a young professional? Well, one of the, the really the main job that I took after finishing um, graduate school was with the Ford Foundation, which in in the you know the beginning of the 70s was one of the largest, most most influential of the international actors. You, you didn't yet have USAID and other donor uh, foreign assistance programs doing very much and certainly not in, in arenas of direct concern to uh, women's health and gender equality. Um, the Ford Foundation itself uh, had only one other woman on its international program staff, uh, no women in their um, two dozen uh, country-based offices around the world in the global south. Uh, so it was it was <laughs> it was a time uh, when uh, first of all I was amazed they hired me, but when they did, their only interest and this was the same wherever you looked, whether it was the U.S. government or the Europeans or the UN system, the only interest they had in women was as a vehicle to achieve population control. The the powers that be, the people who held the money, the people who decided on the policies. They did not see women as human beings, full stop. So I just decided that, well, we've got to change how people are thinking in the world. <laughs> and the foundation was a very good platform to do that. I know that when I started as a, as a young professional, I, I remember talking to a senior journalist who said that when she started, she was about 25 years older to me at that time, and she said that she, the offices didn't have uh, restrooms for women because there weren't that many women. Uh, it's something as simple as that, which has an impact on your health and uh, so much, so much more, right? Um, so let's fast forward and come to. Then there was the Be Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action on Women. But let's actually come to Fila's time now. Fila, what do you when you work now today? What is the picture today in in your work, uh, where uh, in your experience of women's health mm -hmm. and gender issues? I would like to think that it's very much different from the past. But realistically, the fact that we're still having this conversation today, 25 years on for Beijing, actually breaks my heart a little bit. The fact that it's still a requirement for us to distinguish or have it be, um, you know, 
have women and girls be divided rather than innately inbuilt in the systems and the human rights systems that we have today truly breaks my heart. Because again, as I've said, 25 years on, it almost feels like we haven't moved as much or as far as we need to. Um, and with recent authoritarianism coming back to life, I would say in different governments around the world, we're just seeing we're just seeing a huge wave of conservatism coming in yet again. Um, and so instead of moving forward even further with the cause, a lot of us are having to play catch up. Not only that, not only are we playing catch up, we're also just having to make our cases again. It's as though the work that has been done for so long, not that it was useless by any means, not at all, but at the same time, it just feels like we're fighting the same fight over and over again. And I think it has been tremendously exhausting to be in that position because as much as I am hopeful for the future, I am also um, pretty saddened by the reality. Good morning, my name is Claudia Garcia Moreno and I'm at the World Health Organization Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research. One of my first tasks when I joined WHO um, short in late 1984 was to develop the position paper for the Beijing Platform for Action, uh, the Beijing Conference. And I was reviewing it this morning to see what we had included there as women's health priorities. And they are all mentioned there, um, the same ones that we would talk about now, but I think there has been a shift in emphasis from a very uh, narrow focus um, on women's uh, reproductive health primarily to a broader view of uh, women as more than just uh, mothers and more than just reproducers. I mean, I think unfortunately that that perspective still remains, and it and it is it is uh, it is prominent in health. Um, but I think there has been, you know, there, there are. There, I mean, this is. I always feel like this is a glass half full, glass half empty situation. Uh, women's health, you know, there have been some important problem progress. Um, there have seems been some important advances in 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 in, in many ways. But uh, but there is still a constant uh, retrenchment, and it is um, you know women's particularly reproductive rights are remain contested and are very much um, very much uh, affected by the political and the and the cultural environment, and we see that the um, some of the discussions and 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 political debates, particularly that we had. 25 years ago, we still have, with a slightly different uh, configuration of countries taking different positions, but it is still it is still a, a challenging, a challenging issue, an area that I've worked in, but where I do think there has been a significant change, which is on the recognition of violence against women as a public health problem. It was visible already in the Beijing Declaration. Uh, and platform for action, but largely seen as a human rights and a criminal justice issue. And um, it is an area where, you know, science and, and, and WHO has played a role in terms of building the evidence, both in terms on the magnitude of the problem and on the impacts on women's health. 
and, and well-being. And I think that this evidence has been important to, to, to shift that perception of violence and, and that it, it, the health system does have a, an important role to play. One of the things that has also changed uh, that I didn't mention earlier is a growing recognition of the need to reach uh, groups of women that are most marginalized or that suffer multiple forms of discrimination. And uh, thanks to social movements, we know, for example, that in some countries, indigenous women or women of colors have much higher maternal mortality rates or or much higher rates of violence. Um, and, um, and this obviously is a result of the underlying social determinants, but it's also impacted by the way our health systems uh, uh, deliver care and the discrimination experienced also in terms of access and, um, and um, to good quality and culturally sensitive healthcare. So I think we need to act at two levels. On the one hand, and particularly as WHO, um, making the health system more responsive to the needs of all women, you know, and, uh, so that we really, you, you know, universal health coverage is truly universal. Um, and, uh, and, and then the other side, which as you say, is much more challenging, is how do we tackle the um, environmental and social and economic determinants that ultimately determined really whether people live or die in, in, many, in many cases. And I think it requires different ways of thinking and different ways of engaging in looking more at systems, you know, not just each social determinant is an isolated thing, but you know, how do all these things interact and how do they impact also on the institutions like the healthcare system, which in many ways replicate some of the inequalities in the gender discriminations and other things that are, that are in the world. Hopeful for the future, but still concerned about what, where we are today. So let me come to you, Adrian. Uh, what were the strategies that you and your fellow feminists used uh, to address, to, to break those barriers, to get to those negotiating tables and make sure that you're at the table, whether that's the UN or the governments, that you are there, uh, not just on the ground working with, with, with women and making sure you have all the information. What were the strategies that you used to 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 move forward. Well, first I want to acknowledge what, what Fila just said. Every generation or within generations has felt the same way, Fila, honestly. And that's partly because these are such core issues for societies. They are so fundamentally central that our work may never be done. And I, I used to, to sort of try to reassure younger activists as they came in and joined the movement or even my own younger staff over the years that, that because I was older and I could look back, One I actually could see markers that this is a long haul. This is a lifetime. You just have to remind yourself how very central this issue is and that every time you, you make a step forward, there's going to be backlash. 
whether it's today, right now, in 2021, or whether it was back in 1975, you know, when I was sitting with the government of Bangladesh. I mean, it's just, it, it is how, how it is. What, what we really learned was that, um, you know, first of all, you, you must, when you decide there's a problem and you're going to advocate for improvement, you must do it from a base of evidence. You know, otherwise you're in a very vulnerable position. Now, back in the day, we had almost no evidence. So one of the accomplishments when I look at it to 2021 now is, oh my goodness, we really broke a whole lot of barriers. If you look, when I started back in the 70s, we hardly even could make estimates of maternal mortality, how many women died in childbirth. And there was zero, zip about maternal morbidity. We didn't know those things then. We know them now. So I, one is that, that evidence base and to keep working at it. Um, a second is um, that both Fila and I think have acknowledged the enormous diversities among women, both the women we work with and the women that, that in, in the masses whom we're very concerned with. But what we had to do strategically was recognize our differences, talk them through, but then create solidarity. If we were going to influence the UN and, and persuade governments to make these kind of policy commitments, let alone implement them, we had to be able to present, if you like, a solid front. So that's the second thing. And the third thing really is that from the beginning, we, some of us, not all of us, but they're an important core, worked on the inside. We, we went inside uh, the UN system in New York the, that controls all these big meetings and negotiations. We went inside WHO. We found friends inside. And when we had a chance, we'd, we'd put forward candidates for staff positions who were our friends and get them hired. And it was very deliberate. And, and as far as I know, it's still deliberate because they're in the institutions that hold the power. So you can't ignore them. You can't just work outside of them. You have to work inside them as well. And then be sure that the insiders are fully communicating and strategizing and all that with the outside. And it worked. And it worked for decades. And I venture a guess that it can work now. But it is very hard. It's, it's a special kind of hardness to, to go where you feel you may not be wanted what would keep us what can keep us motivated every time we feel defeated in this field oh gosh fila um you know the world is so changed on the one hand you now your generation and i make that plural because actually it's more than one generation you have all kind of capacity to communicate and support each other that we didn't have we had really hard times. We turned to each other. The solidarity is what sustained us. You know, we could, sorry, we could bitch and moan and all that to each other and then leave the room, so to speak, and, and have a strong, united sort of front for the outside. So, you know, relying on each other for, you know, complaining and all that is a good thing. But, but you have to take care of yourselves also. This is a long haul, and I don't just mean physically, I mean spiritually, you know, in terms of your yeah. mental well-being. 
Um, and that's okay. That is not coddling yourselves. That that's crucial. So, uh, but I think that that I guess if I had one sort of encouragement, it would be, and I, you you probably have this already, but the intergenerational aspect I think can be very important to find older activists who have been through the the wars earlier and who can't tell you and shouldn't tell you how to do your own work now, but you can share lessons and insights and all of that. My name is Emma Fulu and I'm the founder and executive director of the Equality Institute. We are a global feminist organisation working to advance gender equality and end violence against women and girls. It's interesting in the context of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, along with the climate emergency, we've seen really that they've both exacerbated existing gender and social inequities. And so I think feminist movements and feminists have been calling attention to those issues for decades. And if you think back to Beijing and the actual platform for action, it really was the extraordinary mobilisation of women's movements built on sort of decades of groundwork and feminist struggles that actually led to that visionary roadmap in the first place. And then since then, really feminist movements have continued to play this instrumental role in advancing sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, and they've also contributed to, you know, public health more broadly. So I think they really have, there's been many, many examples of where they've had significant impact um, in the public health space. And now more than ever, we're saying we need to expand direct investment in feminist movements as one of the most effective ways to protect and advance the human rights of women and girls uh, across the world. Funding really needs to be flexible and long-term and geared towards supporting that activism and allow the feminist movements and organisations themselves to define their agenda and, and use that funding in ways that they that make sense to them because they understand the situation on the ground. They know what's going to work. Um, we know that Ireland obviously overturned the 35-year ban on abortion. That was in 2018. Um, Argentina also recently decriminalised and legalised access to abortion up to 14 weeks. And really both of those were the result of decades of sort of movements, um, movements and feminist movements and mobilisation. If you think about public health issues, whether that's violence against women or sexual and reproductive health and rights, they're really a lot about social norms and the way we understand our societies and the way we understand the roles of men and women and what's acceptable and not acceptable. And movements are fundamentally about culture change and social norm change, and they drive that change at multiple levels of society, you know, from the grassroots individual to the family and communities, all the way up to influencing policy and legislation. So that's, I think, why they're so powerful and so vital in the public health space. At what stage will we stop needing to make the case in, you know, truly pushing forward the rights of women and young girls? At what point and at what position will governments all around the world decide, hey, they deserve rights 
because they deserve their rights, not because it's cheaper to give them their rights, not because it's um, it's in the best interest of the of the finances of the, the economy of the country for them to have it, but rather women deserve their rights. No questions asked. Well, I think maybe that point will never be reached. What I could say is that there are more and more people who actually believe that. The Vienna Conference on Human Rights, the UN that I mentioned in 92, mm -hmm. um, that was where women first established uh, that women's rights are human rights. That's always attributed to Hillary Clinton in Beijing, but no. It was established in that intergovernmental meeting in Vienna in 1972, and it happened because of actually a quite small, but very well-organized, trained, thoughtful group of feminist advocates from I don't remember now how many countries, uh, who just embedded themselves in that conference process. And fortunately, the US government at the time was very um, open to hearing what they had to say. And so when the US government you know, backed the, the basic core understanding that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights, uh, it, it managed to go through. But the job is never done in that sense. You know, um, just two or three years later, you know, Hillary had to go to Beijing and state it all over again. And uh, it, it's, um, it, it, I guess I look more at, you know, the economic arguments in favor of, you know, equality for women and all that and the other kinds of arguments for the, you know, investing in young people and recognizing their fundamental human rights. Um, whatever argument we could put on the table, we'd use it. Whatever works to get the, right. the reality, the programs, the policies. So for me, it is a never-ending task. It's true. I want to address science. Um, even science now, for instance, is uh, being attacked, right? We're in a, in a situation where um, uh, in various settings in various countries, um, science is being attacked. So how, how does one operate? How does one operate with your evidence and data to back the policies that you want to go forward? Science is under attack in, in very powerful ways, but the people who are the scientists who do the research, the institutions that sustain them, and for the most part, those who provide the funding, are holding solid. And what we have to do is constantly, in whatever our work might be, is to say how invaluable evidence, hard scientific evidence is, and that we need more of it. We need to, you know, and from the women's health and gender equality point of view, we still have gender biases. We still don't know enough about certain aspects of, of women's health. And so I, I just feel that, you know, it, the solidarity that we can express as the activists uh, is not just words, because I think many of the research institutions have come to realize um, that 
while their fundamental work can continue, uh, of course, funding is, is, is uh, you know, at risk, but anyway, um, that they need the advocates, if you like, the political actors on the outside, the, the feminists, the, the young people, the um, uh, other, um, you know, um, alliances of HIV AIDS activists, human rights communities, to keep standing up and saying, we need this science. We, we, we've used it in the past. Here's how we can use it. You policy people have to pay attention to it, etc. In other words, we're part of the solidarity uh, group surrounding, you know, beleaguered science at this point because we believe in it. We've used it. We know that it's central. Thank you. <laughs> Truly. Thank you. No, thank you. I mean, really, it's we, you know, we would, we couldn't possibly move forward if we didn't have new generations all the time. It's just, it's just been um, central to all, to my work and to the work of all those women that I respect and regard so highly to keep bringing in the new generations. It's, it's essential. So Fila is the new generation. How do you think that could be done? Open more spaces to young people, to other people to join the decision-making tables. Because as it currently stands, you know, this is not something people have access to. Every engagement that we've had with young people so far has felt very tokenistic. Organizations and foundations are looking at young people with a checklist in mind. Do they fit the certain boxes? Are they the right kind of activists we want to see? And I think we need to really move away from that. My name is Sheena Hadi, and I'm based out of Karachi, Pakistan, and I'm the executive director of a local nonprofit here called Ahang. Ahang has been working on sexual and reproductive health and rights for over 25 years. And a strong focus area of Ahang's has been on um, young people and adolescent sexual and reproductive health and rights, particularly comprehensive sexuality education being integrated into schools and community settings. Comprehensive sexuality education, and the reason why it's very important to keep the comprehensive in there is so that we can't pick and choose what we're talking about with sexuality education. So it really is a comprehensive set of information and skills that is given to young people in an age-appropriate manner so that they can use it most effectively, process it, and it comes in to their lives at a time that they can apply it before it's too late. So for example, when we're teaching young people about their body changes during puberty, it's not very effective to give them that information after the fact. Um, and so that's one of many different things, but but comprehensive sexuality education deals with, um, you know, negotiation skills and, and confidence building. It deals with laws and policies, like one of the things we talk about in Pakistan is laws and policies around age of marriage, um, which is important for girls and boys to know about. Um, it talks about violence um, and uh, sexual harassment, um, and also, of course, safe sexual behaviors. And when it's done really well, then it will also talk about what positive sexuality is, what diversity means, um, sexual orientation, and really that that 
sexual behavior is something that should be associated with positivity, safety, and pleasure, um, and not just associated with fear-based messages. I think the inherent discomfort with young people and their evolving sexuality is something that we see all over the world. And so interestingly, the challenges are, are the same, um, whether we're you know, in the West, in the North, in the South, in the East. Um, so the work that we're doing in Pakistan is with a whole range of groups. We have worked with approximately 500 schools independently. These are mostly private schools. And through those schools, we've worked with administrators, teachers, parents, and other associated community members. If we can find points of uh, to communicate with with uh, those that are invested in children. And we can find points where they recognize that there are uh, serious issues and challenges that young people are facing. Then we can start to find a middle ground to communicate with them on. Um, and what they often realize, what, you know, originally the, what we would call the gatekeepers um, start to realize is that um, a lot of these issues are interrelated. So, if, for example, we can't just talk about um, the harassment of girls without talking about things like gender equality and rights, um, you know, and other forms of violence and, and um, uh, you know, toxic masculinity and things like that, because they're all interrelated. So we have to talk about them all. We have to treat them all. Um, and a lot of it, I, I think, is about really being transparent, really being honest about what we're trying to do with young people. Um, and uh, and when we involve the communities and, and, and we involve everybody in the conversation, I think that has allowed us to move past a lot of the barriers. And that's not to, that's not to sugarcoat it and say that it's, um, it's easy or that we've solved uh, all of those challenges. But I think little by little, we are starting to get um, a lot of those who are hesitant about this kind of education to realize that without it, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, particularly parents are operating in the complete, in a complete dark uh, setting right now because they don't, they don't understand really what young people, for example, are doing when they're online for such long hours. They can't even recognize or understand some of the language that's being used. Um, and rather than dealing with that by sticking your head in the sand, I think what we've tried to make people realize is that we have to take it head on. Um, and really that starts with communication. That's the absolute crux of it is communication. So, Fila, tell me about the strategies that you're using today in your work. Yeah, I mean, the core of IYAFP is essentially to have young people themselves decide what they think is best to be done on the ground. And a lot of times that really requires us to, you know, just utilizing the science that exists today, but disseminating it more so in a language that is comprehensible for the day-to-day -day people. So... Basically, what we've been doing is literally just utilizing the, the wide variety of platforms that exist today. Things like developing TikTok challenges and Instagram reels and all of these different things have allowed for us to reach a space where we could really share out our messages without the layer of filter 
that often comes when we're speaking about something like sexual reproductive health and rights, especially in countries where, you know, things are more conservative or, you know, it's not something anybody really wants to talk about within societies. Um, but with this, with this opportunity of the wide variety of platforms, we're getting there, we're making it happen. Um, and it's just really exciting to see just how much this continues to grow and just how many more people we're seeing, you know, converted with the same mindset that um, a lot of us in the field have had for years on. So Fila, you were probably not even born at the time of the Beijing Declaration. How uh, do you look at, you know, over the years, mm -hmm. all the work that's been done, how do you look at that work? Uh, and then looking forward, what mm -hmm. do you think um, are the important strategies for young uh, women's rights activists? Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I, 25 years ago, I was born. Without everything that was done 25 years ago, we wouldn't be here today. I don't think any of us would be able to have platforms like this to really speak about um, all these important issues. And so I think moving forward, what is really important for there to be is just the development of more intersectionalities between the causes that we're all championing for. Because the reality here today is the fact that we still continue to work in silos. Not many people are realizing just how crucial or how key, you know, environmental issues are to feminism. They're one and the same thing. It's not being spoken about that way. And I suppose, you know, the reality here is even here at IYAFP, we're not doing enough of promoting that intersectionality. And I think for the future and moving forward for Resolve, that is really the direction we want to go towards. Um, I think it's not enough for us to exist and function within our own respective entities, but it's more so about really just combining our efforts, getting together and really getting there to ensure that, you know, women have bodily autonomy. Women get to decide what they want to do with their lives, um, whether or not they want to have a child. And it's all these things that leave me hopeful and excited to continue in this field simply because I have been disappointed or, you know, Adrian has shared her stories here, you know, being humiliated or, you know, disregarded really, in fact, um, especially as a young person, especially as a young Muslim woman in Malaysia trying to speak up about sexual reproductive health. It's not an easy space to be in. But at the same time, what has happened 25 years ago has truly paved the way for what we have today. My name is Osvaldo Montoya. I am originally from Nicaragua. I am a member of the Men Engage Alliance, which is a, an international network working on engaging men for, for ending patriarchy and for promoting gender equality and gender justice, challenging the, the, the patriarchal system that is, that is still in place. Unfortunately, we do need the involvement of, of everyone and men represent a, a good portion of a population of humanity. So men should be part of this, of this process of transformation. Of course, when we say men engagement in engaging men, we have to be very careful about um, what we are saying because it's not just about men showing up, it's about men showing up, but with a com commitment to, to deconstruct the the mindset the the in, implicit rules about relationships just to give you an example 
in the in the domestic life is not just about men in being more engaged in caring for children in domestic chores. It's about also they doing that in a with a mentality that this that power should be shared, that we are not superior. Because you can engage in that, but then starting dominating and, and criticizing and, and trying to uh, establish what is the best um, according to your own ideas and making women's life more limiting, more repressive. One of the fruits of the feminist work in which now men are, many men are also part of recognizing that this is harming all of us. Not in the same way, of course, but many of our physical and mental health is affected by these um, harmful um, notions of what is to be a man or, or the pressure to, be, to prove that you are a man. That's very harmful as well for men. It's, it's essential in the work that we do with men and boys to help men and boys to recognize the, the also harmful beliefs, attitudes that we have been indoctrinated regarding people who don't identify with the dominant um, uh, expressions and identities regarding sexuality and gender. I'm speaking here directly about gay men, lesbian, about um, transgender people, about bisexual people. Also extremely important, it's not just about equality and justice among people. We are part of, of the planet. We are one, one, just one species of the planet and part of the patriarchal masculinity has been to, to uh, abuse, exploit nature. I mean, the, the other elements of nature besides humans, animals, plants, natural resources. And, that's, and this patriarchal mentality is taking us to these um, frightening moments in, in which the world is at risk, the planet is at risk. Of extinguishing because precisely, you know, greed and 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 patriarchal mentalities and, and practices and policies. So I want to talk about this moment now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. How has this pandemic impacted women's health? and um, are all the work that was going on uh, in gender equality. What I would personally like to see, as discussions continue about universal health coverage getting into place, you know, as governments continue to work um, in developing and, and solidify the universal health coverage packages um, for their respective countries, I think it's crucial now more so than ever for, for them to really look into ensuring that women's health and reproductive health and rights issues are being included in on it. Because right now, it remains to be something that is not mentioned explicitly enough for it to make a difference. It's covering generic bases that will leave the future still in a state where it's not enough, essentially. And I understand that it will never be enough necessarily because it will always continue to change. But at the same time, you know, Access to safe abortion remains to be something that is so difficult um, and quite frankly impossible for a lot of nations around the world. And I think the inclusion of this or the consideration of having it included in the UHC will change the trajectory of our fields um, and the rights of women and girls will be taking shape in a different way that I'm really excited to see. 
Adrian, would you like to talk about that? What I can only hope for, I think, coming out of this is that so much has been revealed, including in the United States, about how disastrously poorly our health systems work, how unequal they are in terms of access for all and especially for those who are most in need, um, and the, di- the, the particular details of how they're, they're dysfunctional and unequal and all that may vary from even in the United States from one state to another, but certainly across countries. The, the core issue is still there that, you know, we as societies in different parts of the world, we have not yet invested enough or in the right ways in making sure that everyone, uh, including and especially women and young people, have access to the healthcare information and uh, support that they need. Uh, I think the epidemic also gives us a good platform uh, for revealing, and and again, we have evidence on this, and so we we need activists to to use that evidence to press the 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 mainstream and to bring political will to invest better in all of the all of the different care giving uh, that's done by women especially not just as professionals doctors nurses etc but in the home the unpaid care work and so on so for me covid has revealed you know long-standing problems if i were uh, you know 40 years younger it would give me a whole new you know agenda for action to work on if you like you know and pursue so and that's of course Fila's task and i don't mean to be discouraging or anything but i i think it's because i think it's really actually quite exciting you have so much to chew on you know but it is daunting and i think Know that you can only do what you can do each day, but be sure that you hold out in front of you. You know very clearly with each other what your ultimate goals are. To get there is never going to be a straight path. It's always going to, you're going to have to tack this way or that way. It's like sailing and the wind changes. You have to just, you know, change your course a bit, but you never let go of what your core goal and values are. Um, and I, there's a tendency to think, oh, we can't compromise. That No, no, no way. We're, you know, they're sort of like fundamentalists around, you know, women's issues. But there, there, a lot of what we achieved in the past was the, because we were willing in the short run to, in order to get consensus and make a couple of steps forward, we didn't go for the ideal. We made compromises. And then we found another way to come back and go at what we had to give up before. And we, you know, found a different direction. You've been listening to Adrian Germain and Fila Magnus. The additional interviews in this podcast were with Emma Fulu, Sheena Hardy, Claudia Garcia-Moreno, and Oswaldo Montoya. This discussion was part of the collection on women's health and gender inequalities and was made in collaboration with the World Health Organization and the UN University. 
A link to the rest of the collection is in the show notes. We'll have two more of these podcasts looking at research into gender inequity in health and the role of legislation in changing that inequity. Those will be available on the BMJ podcast, available wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Vismita Gupta-Smith. Thank you for listening.